We have the privilege today of being able to hear from the Word of God, the revelation that God has given us. If you think people like Moses were so blessed to have God give them some revelation, consider that we have so much more. So please listen to the Word of God as we read from the Psalms. The first reading is taken from the book of Psalms at Psalm number 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading this morning is taken from the book, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Chapter four, beginning at the fourth verse. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the reading of the Lord. Amen. The Gospel reading today is found in the book of Luke. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary 
treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today, the uh, word of the Lord will be opened up to us by our brother Reuben. Uh, he's a longtime member of this church, faithful, a father and grandfather, and as such, I'm sure we will almost certainly hear about the praises of children and infants uh, establishing a stronghold in the midst of our enemies. Uh, he always mentions his grandkids, so I'm sure he will again. Uh, speaking of children, if you want them to stay in the service, they're more than welcome to. Otherwise, they can go out uh, and they'll meet uh, Shara at the back door and they can go to the cafeteria and uh, have some time there with her. Um, so, without further ado, Reuben. Good morning. And again, welcome to Christ Church. Historic and prophetic location. And when we look at your faces every morning, every evening, every time that we come here together, I can tell you what we see, us, those who serve here, those who were born in this land, those who call upon the name of the Lord, Yeshua, in this city. When we look upon you, we see not only the children of God gathering from the nations, coming up to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord as it is written, but we also see these seats occupied with locals, with Israelis, with people who are born and raised in this land, people who still walk in darkness, yet their hearts are burning with a strange and a distant flame that maybe there is a God. Maybe there's a guiding hand to our painful and miserable long history. Maybe we were brought back to the land for a good purpose, not just to keep fighting wars and wrestling with bad politics. Maybe there's a good revival coming. And your occupying these seats is a hope for our hearts. So thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for opening up your hearts. And let us pray. Avinu Malkeinu, our Heavenly Father, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers, for sisters to dwell together in unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one destination, one great calling. And so we bind ourselves to the love of God in the name of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And we ask that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. And all God's people said, couldn't hear you. All God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. Thanks, John. Listen, your faith helps. Remember. Our Lord Yeshua couldn't do too many miracles, the scripture says, in Nazareth. Remember why? Because of their lack of faith. Yeah, he can do anything he wants to do. 
but he loves to do it to the choir of the faithful hearts. So your faith helps. Roger, I have a question. You know that song that we sing sometimes from uh, Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you? Is that something you can pull out of your sleeve for the end of the service? Thank you. That good to have anointed musicians. They always take us to heaven. Special day today on the church's calendar. It is the day of the Lord's circumcision and the day of the Lord's naming. Two important events that we will unpack and discuss and take home to feed the little ones. Because whatever the Lord works in our hearts is to bear fruit so we can serve others with it. Now, did it happen on this very day? I don't know. There are a lot of faith traditions that point this way. There are other just as weighty, just as thoughtful church traditions that point at other dates. The good news, friends, is that we don't celebrate a date. We celebrate Him. We celebrate His coming. We celebrate the amazing event that heaven invaded earth. And just like the apostle wrote in the letter to the Galatians, at the fullness of time, God sent His Son. I love this. At the fullness of time. So, so land on this for a second. What time was it? Because this was one baby. If there was any one child, the only child born on this blessed earth that could have selected where he would be born, when he would be born, to whom he would be born, the circumstances into which he was about to be raised. If there was only one person on earth from the Garden of Eden to our last breath who could have determined every detail of his life, it was him. Heaven's king or his boss. He came at the fullness of time. He came to a nation under oppression. He came to a bereft house of kings that have been in exile for a thousand years. The remnants of the house of David now live in the shacks in Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth, the, the philosophers of Jerusalem would say. It was a poor peasant's village. On a good day, 200 people lived there. At the fullness of time. When the nation is poor, when the people are oppressed, when faith is hanging by a thread, where the priesthood is corrupt, where the army is defunct, where there is so little hope left, it seems that it is nearly the end, the extension of this national existence, the great promises, the awesome prophecies, the lineup of godly prophets who spoke about awesome and great outcomes. And it's almost all squashed. Finito. Talk about God and his timing in our lives. Talk about the Lord's appearances in our circumstances. Oh, we can select a whole lot of, uh, that's going to be a good time for you to show up. Please, Lord, I need this now, and I'm facing that now, and they need you yesterday. And the world is falling greatly into chaos every day around us. Is it not? Would not be a good day for the Lord to return? I don't know how many of you watched the movie Fiddler on the Roof. 
highly recommended. Great movie about the plight of the Jewish people fleeing Eastern Europe about 120 years ago. My family is in that movie. That's how we came to Israel. My grandpa came here 100 years ago on foot from Russia, walking. The poor Jewish community in the shtetl in the Ukraine where they lived and were persecuted and chased around by the evil Gentile Christians and they were now forced to leave their little village and the village men gather around their old little feeble rabbi and they said, Rabbi, wouldn't that be a good time for Messiah to return? And the old man is scratching his long scraggly beard and he thinks probably prays behind his face, and he says, well, yeah, we'll just have to wait for him another place. This is my people. Our existence is a life of waiting for him, and you were grafted into the same tree. It's not any different to you, my friends. You have been grafted into the old, gnarly, rugged olive tree that doesn't die, that lives on from generation to generation, from age to age, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Emperors come and emperors vanish. Every empire in the world dragged their tails across the world and brought their armies to this city, planted their flags upon these walls, put their gods in our temples, raped our women, killed our children, and they're all gone. Zechariah prophesied that Jerusalem will stand where Jerusalem always stood. Why? Because it is God's city. It is a symbol of his faithful covenant. So at the fullness of time, God sent his son. Now he's eight days old, and according to our church calendar, it's time for two important things within the Jewish context of his life. One, to be circumcised, ouch. Two, to be named, that's better. I've been to a lot of circumcision celebrations in my short and troubled life. Twice I held a child in my arms while they have been circumcised. It's an honorable position within a Jewish household. One was my son, the second was my grandson. Both times, I almost fainted. I know, you can laugh, but it was sad. Here's an ex-military, blood on my hands, all sorts of accolades to my name, and, and I'm standing there and my knees are buckling because they're messing up with my son's tender flesh or my grandchild's tender flesh. This is a weird sign of an awesome covenant. And it wasn't given to anyone but us. They had to do it. Goes back to Genesis chapter 17 where God ramps up his relationship with Father Abraham. He already called him. He already showed him. He already, he already opened up his eyes to see the stars of the heavens. So shall your descendants be. And the grains of sand upon the seashores. So shall your descendants be. God is ramping up Abraham's faith so he can be our father of faith. You and me. Now it's time to make a covenant. 
Genesis chapter 17, and he instructs him how to do it, and he says, it will be in the circumcision of your flesh, that tender spot, the sign of the covenant that we belong to God. Think about it. For one thing, it is a physiological medical marvel. Because I don't think that in the days of Abraham and Sarah, they knew that on the eighth day of the life of the child, their blood begins to form up its capacity to, what do you call it? To clot. Within the biological development of the human body, on the eighth day, the clotting process is fulfilled. It is not safe. It is not recommended to circumcise a child any younger than eight days. Eight days, they'll make it. Secondly, consider the location of the operation. And while it is a pretty light, minor medical procedure, I bet you if you had a choice in the matter when you were eight days old, you would say, not me. Thank you very much. I'd much much rather go to the Christian traditional uh, option of baptized. Hey, can I get baptized instead of circumcised? Can I get confirmed in the church? I mean, give me any Christian tradition. It's better than the cut. But there was no option. In fact, the commandment of the Lord to Father Abraham in Genesis 17, if you take notes, was pretty thorough. In fact, the first circumcision of all was self-made. Abraham, circumcise yourself, God says, and all of your household, and all of your servants. It was a very inclusive command. He says, all those who belong to you, even the foreigners who are in your household, circumcise them so that they all can be part of the covenant peoplehood of God. You belong to me, saith the Lord. And this is the sign. With every covenant, there must be blood. There's never been a covenant cut on earth, certainly not between God and man, that did not involve blood. The shedding of blood is always a necessity, as it is with this one. A blood has to be shed, the foreskin had to be removed, the biological procedure had to take place, and the child was given a little bit of a wine or something from the vineyard to, to suck on, to numb their senses and pass the moment of pain. Today, Akamol works great. But I still almost fainted when I held my son and then held my grandson years later, and I'm seeing the mohel, as we call it in the Hebrew language, the circumciser rabbi come in with all of his instruments of torture. I was ready to knock him upside down. But the covenant is more important. And the terms of the covenant were severe. God says anyone who is not circumcised shall be cut off from the company of Israel. But it was so inclusive, beautifully inclusive. I'm talking about Old Testament terminology, please. So don't run outside after the service to get circumcised. 
You are now circumcised in the Messiah. The circumcision of the Spirit is active in your lives. If you belong to Yeshua, if you belong to Jesus, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the preaching of the Word, the fellowship of the brethren, the high worship that we have just been a part of, all these things circumcise your heart from dead works and put upon you the new person. That's the circumcision of the Messiah. But in the old days... I've always been impressed how inclusive God was when he told Father Abraham, you, your sons, your servants, your workforce, even the foreigners who come to hang out with you, if they vote with their feet and they want to stay with you, get them, circumcise them, bring them into the faith. It's not about our pedigrees. It's not about who we were born to. It's not about our qualifications. We choose with our feet. You place yourself in the house of God. You come to the altar of the Lord. You go to the hour of prayer. You rise up to the call of worship. You choose with your feet and you say, I want to be part of this community. And it works. And so the child... That was the introduction. Let me see. Oh, yes. The circumcision and the naming. The circumcision was important in that it was part of the qualifications of our Lord Yeshua in his role of the Redeemer. If we need a qualifier beyond a question of doubt that God became flesh in that instant, it's this. It is a proof of the incarnation in your face. If the whole coming of the Son of God to earth was just a, was just a comedy, it was, if it was just a show, if he just pulled a trick and walked among us like an angel that looks around like a man, fine. But he was circumcised on the eighth day. They drew the blood. They cut the foreskin. They changed his body permanently. And if you would, and forgive my straight talk, there is a circumcised divine person sitting on the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. I don't know how it works. I'm a simple person. I read it, and I believe it. And I allow God through the rest of my life to teach me, to explain to me, to, to show me how the mystery unravels. And more importantly, how he changes my and your lives. Yeshua was circumcised. And it was a marvelous thing. He had to come as the apostle wrote, in the fullness of time. Yeah, he could have been born anywhere he wanted to. He could have been born to, to, to an emperor's household. He could have lived in a palace in Switzerland. He could have had a life of leisure and pleasure and still offer himself quickly with a moment of death at the end of a wonderful life. No, that's not how he chose to do it. At the fullness of time according to hundreds of detailed prophecies, 
woven through the tapestry of Scripture. Our Bibles are not some kind of a, of, a, of a document you submit to the professor at the end of your dissertation on your doctorate at the university. No, it is not a well-organized document where you can go to chapter 3, line 2, paragraph B, and find everything you need. No. This is poetry. This is history. This is science. This is, this is faith. This is a book that has to be read when you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night, when you talk with your children and when you walk about to work. The Word is alive. It really did become flesh in us. And through these 66 books which were printed and written over thousands of years, the Holy Spirit as a master weaver weaves the story of God's Son. And hundreds of prophecies predicted his life, where he would be born, Bethlehem, Ephrata, when he would be born, while the temple still stood because he had to enter into that temple before it was destroyed by the Romans at 70 AD, what family he would come on out of the line of Jacob, from the household of David, what, what, what home he would come from, in Nazareth he shall be called, detail after detail after detail, to the point where time after time, and I selected only four simple Old Testament reminders that he had to be born as a son. You see, that circumcision covenant sign was given to us. I'm talking about us, guys. Not to you, dear ladies, sisters in the faith, daughters of the living God. The sign of the covenant was given to the men. Somehow, in the wisdom of God, he laid it on us to keep the covenant, to uphold these difficult truths, to pass them on to every generation. Of course, we cannot do it without the ladies. We know how it works, but the sign of the covenant is in our flesh. And it is probably in the most sensitive place, both physically and psychologically. God, when he does something, he does it well. We read in the, we read in the scriptures the, the, the famous prophecies. We just went through all of them through the Christmas season preparing for the birth of the Son of God. Behold, the virgin shall have a son. Ha'alma teled ben. This is not an ambiguous language in the Hebrew. It is a son that was to be expected from an unmarried woman, most probably a virgin. Yes, the prophet could have used another word, betula, would be a better word in Hebrew to denote virgin. But the word alma in Isaiah in chapter 7 speaks about a young unmarried girl who is most likely a virgin. And that is a teaching for another day, for another service. But a virgin shall bear a son. So a son was expected. He says in Isaiah chapter 9, a son will be born unto us. Here is Isaiah. He's prophesying to a nation that is heading into a national calamity. The Assyrian Empire is already breathing on their necks. The northern borders are dark with enemy's forces. Times were difficult. In fact, when you consider Isaiah's prophecy, what a profound appearance in itself. His, his, his first 
Five chapters are mighty in terms of demanding social justice and speaking against the corruption that was running rampant here in Jerusalem, in Israel. But something happens to the prophet in chapter 6. And he sees a vision. And he's in a temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He hears the angel of the Lord says, who shall I send? And he volunteers. He says, here I, send me. Remember that? Isaiah chapter 6. And he receives the message of his life. The whole prophecy of Isaiah changes in chapter 6. He's not calling for social justice anymore, and he's not as concerned. He was, but not as concerned about the conduct of the kings and the rulers of Israel. He saw the Lord. He heard the voice. He said, send me. The angel with a coal flew toward him and singed what? His lips. His speech. His mouth had to be purified. And it was given to him a word. I'm reading out of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9. And he said, I said, here I am, send me. And he, that angel said, go and tell this people. Here starts the prophecy of Isaiah for real. Go, tell them. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull, their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad for the anointing. What a great message you gave me. The, me the, me the Old Testament prophet, our own Shakespeare, the one who gave us the most detailed descriptions of the Messiah, gets his life's message. Go and tell these people, look, but you cannot see. Listen and hear nothing. Your hearts are too heavy. Your minds are too darkened. Lest they see with their ears and eyes and hear with their ears and understand. And be, wouldn't that be terrible if the nation gets the point and returns and repents and is healed? Then I said, no wonder he pondered. Lord, how long? How long is this drama going to continue over the people of Israel? This was 2,500 years ago plus. How long are we going to remain blind and deaf and hard of heart? Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without men, the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away, for the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then he started to prophesy about the Messiah. Almost every ongoing chapter of Isaiah, he talks about a child will be born unto us. He weaves the miracle into their present day history. The virgin shall bear a son. The Assyrians are already knocking on the northern borders. And he says, but unto us, a child will be born, chapter 9. Unto us, a son will be given. And he gives him the names, his titles. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful 
Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He begins to tell us incredible descriptions of that son, of that child that will come forth out of Israel, even while the nation continues to wallow in birth pains and suffering. We did produce him. He came at the fullness of time. We read in Psalm 2, we have a precious group of intercessors who are faithfully standing before our parliament building every week for years, praying for our government to not lose its cookies, praying for our Knesset members to hear the word of the Lord, praying for our judicial praying for our Supreme Court because it's right next, next to our Knesset, our parliament on the, on the hill, and praying that they will judge righteously. We have these dear intercessors are standing there in the cold, in the rain, in the heat, in the wind, and one of their main scriptures, one of the founding scriptures of that small group of intercessors is Psalm chapter 2 about the nations raging and about the rulers of the earth rising against the Lord and his anointed, and yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. He says, till late, I have already set my king on my holy hill on Zion. And God says, Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree. God says, I have already done the work. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. He came. At the fullness of time. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And it ends. The last verse of this Psalm 2, which is at the core of the intercession of this group of intercessors praying for our government every week for years, says this. Be careful, you judges of the earth. And be wise, O kings. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. That day is coming, and the warning has been issued long ago and continues to echo down the generations. So who is this son who was circumcised on the eighth day, most probably still in Bethlehem? They didn't move the babies too far back then. It would have been 30 days from birth until they would bring him up to the temple courts to present him when Simeon prayed the awesome prayer, Lord, I'm ready to die. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. My life has been complete. It would have been 30 days before Anna from the tribe of Asher would look at that child and prophesy. She who was prophesying in the temple for more than 80 years, an old widow, God works in mysterious ways. I know we like the jackets. We like the skinny jeans and smoke machines and, and, and fancy music. We like the ways of the world. But I tell you, this world and its passions is passing away. And only that which is anchored in the rock shall stand. The circumcision probably took place in Bethlehem, as was the naming. And Luke, good old Dr. Luke, the most organized of the gospel writers, 
the one who gave it to us chronologically, point by point, item by item, also gave us that point. And his name was called Yeshua. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I don't want to be led to labor this too much because you are already educated and informed to know that a name reflects the person's DNA before God. The name reflects something. If we were named with a divine decree, if we were named by praying parents, if we were named with the hand of God upon our conception, if our life counts, and every life counts once you come to God, then he gives us a name. In fact, one of the wonderful promises of the Lord to the churches of the Revelation is those who overcome are receiving a new name which no man knows. I love it. Because the name tells me there's another identity about to unfold. There's another calling. There's another mantle. There's another mission. There's another purpose. It is going to go on forever. This life is short and passing. It's all about preparing for the real world. You see, our God, the God you got involved in, some of you intentionally, some of you because somebody circumcised you on the eighth day, or somebody baptized you when you were a baby, or somebody brought you to the church altar when you were a young believer, and they brought you to your knees, and they put words in your mouth, and they laid hands upon your head, and now you're here. That God that you got involved with, he's serious. He's seriously and intentional and precise and sovereign in preparing a people for himself who will surround his throne forever and ever and ever and eternity. That's a long time. He's perfecting, he's chiseling, he's shining, he's shaking, he's rebuilding us according to his grand design. And his name was called Yeshua. Simple name, actually not a very uncommon name in the culture of the day, but it means Yeshua. Yah saves. It's not complicated. And within the concept of Yeshua, within the Hebrew mind, it is not just the forgiveness of sin for some ultimate redemption. It is salvation from every sort of trouble. Yeshua means your healing to the physical body. Yeshua means the repairing of your natural relationships. Yeshua means the putting together of those pieces of your lives that have been wrecked Beyond measure, Yeshua means putting all things together for the glory of God according to his grand design. Yeshua is an ultimate redemption. Seven children in the Bible were named prenatal. Seven babies. Let's rehearse them. And I love the order of God. The first was Ishmael. Hagar, 
He's weeping in the desert, laying under the bush, ready to die. Have you been cast out because she misbehaves? Because her mistress, Sarah, couldn't take the abuse anymore? Now, who shows up? Jesus. The angel of the Lord. Most probably one of the many pre-incarnate visitations of the Son of God. And he talks with her and he says, get it together. Go back to your mistress. You will bear a child and you will call his name Yishmael. The father of our Arab Friends and neighbors, cousins, half-brothers, I love them all. We'll figure it out. They're stuck with us, and we're stuck with them. This is a family feud. Don't get involved. Ishmael was the first baby called by God prenatal. And his name is profound. It means God will hear. Yishmael, he will hear their cry, and he will answer. So if you have a calling to minister to Arab folks, to Muslim brethren and sisters, just remember their origin, Yishmael. God will hear them and will answer. The second child that was named prenatally was Isaac. And God told Father Abraham and then told Sarah, Ah, you will have a son and you will call his name Yitzchak because you laughed, because you mocked, because you thought I'm telling you a joke. No, I'm giving you a promise. A promise that will perpetuate your life, that will change the world. And you will call his name Laughter. Yitzchak was named before he was conceived. The third one was actually King Solomon. We have an obscure scripture in the Chronicles where David talks to Solomon and he says, Listen, God talked to me before you were born. And he told me that I won't be able to build that temple because my hands are filled with too much blood. So I'll give you a son, a man of rest, a man of peace. And you will call his name Shlomo. Shalom, a peaceful abode. He was spoken before he was born to his father. David knew that. King Josiah was spoken of by the obscure prophet who came out of Judea, 1 Kings chapter 13, and, and uh, the kingdom just split. Solomon is dead. His son is losing it. Jeroboam is building up altars to the, to the pagan gods and to the demons already in Samaria. And an obscure prophet, I love this about God. You need to love this about God. A no-name prophet, nobody important. No one knew him. God did. Shows up out of nowhere. Gets in the face of King Jeroboam, the head of the cult, the main Satanist, standing over his little altar about to sacrifice some junk. And he says, a child will be born of the house of David, Josiah his name. And he will burn human bones on this altar. The king's arm dries. The altar splits. I mean, talk about drama. They should make movies about these things. A hundred years later, four kings later, a child was born to the house of David who got his act together who chased away the Satan worshippers, who destroyed the Ashtoreth's altars, who, who killed the witches and the warlocks. Da, blood was shed. This was not a pretty revival. 
and he cleansed the land. And go, go and behold, his people found the book of the law, which they lost hundreds of years ago. Huh? My people in Israel lost our Bible for hundreds of years. And you know the worst thing about it? We didn't even know it. So please don't worship the Jew. Don't think that Israel is any better than anybody else. We were just chosen to be first, which is a nasty job. Because our failures show to everyone. Our regretful history is recorded in the book. Not yours, ours. So learn and grow up. Josiah came and took care of business. There were other babies who were prenatally called Cyrus. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus will rise and a great king over the Persian Empire and he will issue the decree to send the exiles back to Judah and to rebuild the house of the Lord. 200 years before he was born, the Bible critics say, yeah, well, sure, that chapter was inserted into the prophecy of Isaiah later on. And I tell them, I pray for your soul, you miserable wretches. He prophesied. And that baby was named. And that baby came on time. And number six, who was named before birth, was the cousin. John the Baptist. I love this character. We'll need three messages just to tell you his story. But the angel of the Lord, that same angel, Michael, showed up on the right hand of the altar of incense, which means that Zechariah was serving in the capacity of the high priesthood of Israel at the time. And he tells him, hey, your wife who's barren and your marriage that is old and decrepit, you're going to have a child. And you will call his name Yohanan. It's my son's name. God's mercies and kindness. Yohanan. Hanan, God will show grace. The old priest tries to argue with the angel, remember? Asking him all sorts of stupid questions. The angel says, hey, zip it. And for nine months, Zechariah walks around, mm, 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 mm. People talk about the miracle of the birth of John, and I'm telling them the greater miracle. Here is a Jewish priest walking around Jerusalem, silent for nine months. And when it was time for John's circumcision and the naming which happened at the same event, the whole family was there. It's recorded in the scriptures. I love the scriptures. So plain, so beautiful. Only believe. They wanted to call the son by his father, which was the normal practice in the Jewish environment, Second Temple period. And his mother says, no, no, no. Dad says, call him Yohanan. And the people come to him now and say, what are you talking about, Yohanan? There's not even a relative in your distant family by that name. You got to call him Zachariah. You got a good name, Zachariah. God remembers. What's wrong with that? And he shakes his hand and he, and, and he rounds his eyes and they, give him, and they give him an iPad and he writes down, his name shall be called Yohanan. And they all marveled, but they obeyed. Why? 
I'll give you a snippet. You have to come back for this full teaching some other day. Yohanan was the last Zadok high priest who was ministering in Jerusalem in the days where the Maccabees, we just went through the feast of Hanukkah, when the Maccabees were able to guerrilla battle, fight, and chase away the evil Greeks that were trying to Hellenize the whole region. They were trying to stop the Jews from not only obeying the law, but also circumcising their babies. And so a war erupted. They won the war. We gained Jerusalem. We cleansed the temple. We lit the candelabra. Eight days of miracle. You know the story of Hanukkah. Eight candles for eight miraculous days. But... It didn't take them long, and they became corrupt. Quite quickly, the Maccabean kings, the Hashmonaim dynasty, became so power-hungry and corrupt that they began to dismiss all the previous priesthood, which was going for a thousand years since the days of David, dismissed them, kicked them out, and appointed themselves to become high priests. And the last high priest, and eventually when the Romans came and they began to appoint their own priesthood, the whole thing became mafia. That was the high priesthood that Jesus faced. Not from the family of Zadok, not from the family of Aaron. Political appointees. Just like today, it's nothing new under the heavens. Well, there's one thing new under the heavens. Jeremiah sits upon the ash heap of Jerusalem. The city is destroyed, the temple is burned. Corpses are laying in the streets. Lamentations chapter 3. And he weeps to God and he laments over Jerusalem. And he says, but one thing I know. The loving kindness of the Lord are new every morning. It's the only thing that's new. The rest, it's just old tales. Men, power. Controls, compromise, regrets, sham, powers and principalities running the circus. But you know better. You've come to church. You listen to the word of God. You open up your heart in prayer. You rise up upon the wings of the spirit when you hear the music playing. You know better. You have been grafted into the olive tree. The last priest that was serving in Jerusalem before the Maccabees kicked them out was named Yohanan. I doubt anybody remembered that. It is recorded in the rabbinical libraries in Jerusalem. But God knew. And the angel knew. And he said, call him Yohanan. And in that respect, there's a real possibility that when John the Baptist began his ministry and was down in the desert and began to proclaim the message of repentance, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, that he was in fact acting in the spirit as the only legitimate high priest of Israel, which is probably why the Lord Yeshua came down to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And he told him, John, come on, 
Because John wouldn't do it. He was embarrassed. He knew he was dealing with. One comes after me who's greater than I, that I'm not worthy to tie up his shoelaces. He says, well, I'm not going John, let's do it. Let us fulfill all righteousness. So John was named prenatal, as was our Lord Yeshua. And they gave him the name. And he has many glorious names. And we sought that name. I find it quite amazing that within the popular culture today, as we wrap up this message, you know that the Jewish people today, their most popular name for the God whom they worship is Hashem. You heard that. Most Jews today relate to God, the Creator, our Heavenly Father, the Maker of the ends of the earth, the Ruler, the Eternal One, the Holy One, blessed be His name. They usually mostly call Him Hashem, which means in Hebrew, the name. They don't know the name yet, but they already call Him the name. If you would like, and if you can receive it, let me give you the best theological posture that you can have toward the people of Israel. When you walk out of these walls, when you step onto those streets, when you get on your bus or do your whatever you do, and you look upon them, think about them like this. They already love the Lord. They just don't know it yet. My wife taught me that, and I love it. Hashem, they call him, the name. How many times in the Old Testament we had encounters of men with angelic beings, with, with creatures divine, men who showed up on earth, and they asked him, what is your name? The father of Samson, when the angels showed up and told him a child will be born to you and he will be Samson and he will be mighty and you will not cut his hair and he should not drink any strong drink. And he asked him, what is your name? Manoach asked him. And the angel told him, Lama atamevakesh et shmi. Why are you asking me my name? The same with Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, he wrestles with the angel. He splits his camp. Bad news on the horizon. Esau is coming at him with 400 armed men. He's returning back to the homeland and he's shaking in his sandals. And he wrestles with the angel all night long. And he says, I won't let go of you until you bless me. So he changes his name, and he gives him a new identity. No more shall you be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have prevailed with God and with men. It's all right to struggle, but struggle right and stumble into his arms. And then he says, what is your name? Jacob says, and the angel of the Lord, which we have no doubt was the pre-incarnate Yeshua, asked him, Lama tevakesh it's me. Why are you asking my name? The same reply. Well, now the name was given. 981 times in the New Testament writings, the name of Yeshua is recorded for us. The most popular word in the Old Testament scriptures. 981 times. The first time in Matthew 1 and verse 1, smack right at the beginning. This is the genealogy of Yeshua HaMashiach, the Christ, the Messiah. And he starts. 
And the last time it appears in the last verse of the book of Revelation, where he wraps up the greatest revelation of the greatest glory ever told. And John says, Let the grace of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, be with you all. He is the Alpha, and He is the Omega. And He was given that name. It was a humble event. We don't even know who came for the celebration. Today we make a big deal about circumcision. There's food, sometimes there's music, there's drink. Family rejoices. It is a happy day. I don't know that they had a big party going on in Bethlehem. It was humble. It was secret. It was dangerous. They were soon to flee. The angel is already on his way to tell Joseph, quickly, get out of here. Go down to Egypt. In the fullness of time. That was the fullness of time. Difficult times. Dangerous times. Perilous times. God sent his son. So, we crown him with many crowns. And we call him many names. He's called Lord. He's called the Savior. We call him the Redeemer. We call him the Bread of Life. We call him the Creator of the ends of the earth. We call him the Son of God. We call him the Son of Man. I'm going down some of the names, the titles that we give him because each and every one of them is necessary in somebody's life. When the enemy comes in like a flood... What does God do? He raises up a banner. Who is our banner? The Lord our God. He fights for us. He's the protection. He's the answer. He's the solution. He's the escape. Whatever you face, whatever works in your life or doesn't work in your life right now, He is the answer. So pick and choose. What do you want Him to be? Your Redeemer? Your bread of life? Your son of God, the son of man, the holy one of Israel, he's wonderful. He's counselor. He's the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega. Your life is written by his pen. He is the almighty. He is the king of the Jews. Herod couldn't come with any better idea than that when he placed him on that cross and a sign hanging above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He never let go of this pedigree. He never apologized for it. He is heaven's high priest. He is Emmanuel, God with you. Is that what you need today? Take it. It's for the taking. It's him. And he's yours by faith, believing. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Right now, he mediates. He negotiates. He brings to you a better covenant. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the Lamb of God, that cousin of his, that Yohanan, the baptizer. When they met at the Jordan River, when the Lord showed up and the crowd split, and he came to him and he says, John, let's do this. And John introduced him to Israel. Remember? He 
could have given him a hundred names that day. He could have called him any of those glorious names. He could have said, behold, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the son of man coming in the clouds of glory, the Alpha and the Omega. But he called him, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Is that what you need? Well, that's what you have. You have a Lamb who takes away your sins. He's called the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's called the Vine, and we are the branches hanging on to Him, to our dear lives. He's called the Bridegroom and the Dayspring and the Morning Star, but we know Him by His name, Yeshua. So let's sing a song, and let's pray a prayer together. I apologize if I've taken a little long, but this is the first message of the year. So we might as well take care of you good. We have a song that is taken out of Numbers in chapter 6. It is a song we can all stand together if you would, if you can. It is a song that is taken from the words of Moses that he spoke to his brother Aaron, the high priest of Israel, instructing him how to bless the people of Israel. You see, they spent about a year camped around Mount Sinai, receiving the law, fussing with God, getting punished because of their iniquities, getting built up into a faith community. They spent a year building the tabernacle. Now it is ready, and it's time to set out to the promised land. But before they do, Moses tells Aaron, listen, we have to have a blessing for the people. We know it's going to be hard. They're going to bow. They're going to run into the promised land. They won't have the courage to take it. Then they'll try to take it in disobedience. There's going to be a lot of battle. There's going to be a lot of trouble. There's going to be a lot of regret, a lot of failures, a lot of victories. It is not going to be easy. So let's have a blessing that will sustain God's people. And this is the blessing that Moses taught Aaron to speak over the people of Israel, to place God's name upon them. And so by faith, believing, if you can receive, we would like of the Lord by His own Spirit and by the angel of the Lord to place His name upon His community of faith. Those who are near and those who are far, those who are strong and those who are weak, the great and the small, all you have is to receive and to abide in His blessing. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, Lord, turn His face toward you. shine 
Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.